1983, long-distance runners from around the globe gathered uh, in Australia to compete in a 544-mile ultramarathon. Uh, they were running from Sydney to Melbourne, and the runners, as you might imagine, were the best of the best, you know, elite, uh, pro, um, decked out in all of the top-line gear from Nike and Asics and, and Puma, and all finely tuned professionals, I mean, ready to run for over 500 miles, all of them, except for one notable exception, and that was a man by the name of Cliff Young. Cliff Young was 61 years old. He was a, uh, a shepherd by trade, and he wore at the starting line overalls and work boots. He was not a pro runner. He had dentures, and he actually said, uh, I took my dentures out before the race because uh, the rattling of the dentures was too distracting for me, and, and I wanted to b- uh, you know, be rid of them. Well, there, there's a picture of him, and this, the starting gun fires, pow, and you know, the runners surge off the line, leaving Cliff Young kind of sh- shuffling behind at a distance. When the first day of racing concluded, the pack was miles ahead of him, and they stopped at the end of the day to sleep a little bit and uh, you know, recharge. Only nobody told Cliff Young that at the end of the day, you sleep. So he continued on running that night, and then the next day, and the next night, and the next day, and the next night. And as, as a shepherd, this was something he was accustomed to. He would be on his feet day and night. You know, he had 2,000 acres that he shepherded his, his sheep um, in all kinds of terrible weather. Day, you know, at all times, he was just accustomed to going long periods on foot without a break. Nobody heard of Cliff Young before the start of the race, but when it was over and when he crossed the finish line in first place, he did so shattering the course record by nearly 48 hours after, after running five days consecutively, days and nights. And I, I don't know about, you know, you and if you're into un, uh, underdog you know, stories and, and thrilling upsets, but that's got to be one of the most incredible uh, upsets uh, of all time. And that theme of of kind of the lowest and the most unlikely, like reversing from the very bottom to the top, is really is a deeply Christian theme, and it's a specifically Christmas theme. Um, the the God that we believe in, the God that we that we serve, in the God who's made Himself known to us in Jesus Christ, loves to showcase His power through weakness. He loves to showcase His wisdom through foolishness. I mean, coming into this world via the birth canal of a Middle Eastern Jewish peasant girl, I mean, all, all that you can do at the end of that is, is watch and stare in disbelief, you know, kind of like they did at that race. And nowhere is it more evident than in Mary's Magnificat, which is in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. And I'll read it to us now. <clears throat> and Mary said... My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all will call me blessed, because the Mighty One has done great things for me, and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. Uh, He has done a mighty deed with his arm. 
He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. And Mary stayed with, her, with, her, um, with Elizabeth about three months, and then she returned to her home. Let's pray again. <clears throat> our Father, we come to these stories around Christmas time thinking that they're great, and th- this is the, kind of the first Christmas but really what we are encountering in this story is uh, the first Christian. You know, she's the first person to ever receive from the angel uh, the message of the Son of God is going to descend to earth. He's going to be born as a human. He's going to bring the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven with him and make the world right again. She's the first person to get that message and respond to it in faith. And uh, we pray that as we listen to Mary's song now, that we would... Um, Take note of how she received this message from the angel. And it, it, you might make us care about the things that she cares about, and namely justice for the poor, and help us to receive this message about the great reversal and align our lives accordingly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, I kind of preached a Mary sermon last, or last week, two weeks ago, so I already gave you background details on her Uh, We jump into her song. It's called the Magnificat. Uh, It's so-called because that it's based upon the very first line in the Latin, magnificare, which means, you know, uh, magnify, the Latin word for magnify. And the Magnificat, if you're not familiar with it, it's probably one of the most famous songs in all of Christianity. Um, It is whispered in monasteries. It is set to music by Bach. It is recited in small uh, churches by evening candlelight. And, and because of that, um, it's easy to get the wrong impression, I think, that Mary is this Northern European nun. <laughs> and you think about the way that she's oftentimes depicted in Renaissance art. I mean, she's, she's very white and she's very nun-like. And it's almost, you read this and it's almost like you can hear, imagine her like, chanting it like a nun would, like, my soul glorifies the Lord. <laughs> When in reality, that is not Mary at all, is it? I mean, she is, no way, she's this ecstatic teenage girl, probably darker complexion, dark skin. She's very poor, and and she is, she's composing a song. And their songs, they didn't have that, you know, that kind of straight metronomy flavor to them. I mean, they probably, it probably involved dancing and stamping of her feet, you know, she was dancing around the room and maybe clapping, and, and I have no sense of rhythm, so I can't, I can't even demonstrate to you what that would be like, but she had received the most extraordinary news the world had ever heard, and whenever we receive extraordinary news, you know, we, we do things we normally wouldn't do. We might send ecstatic texts to everyone we know, or we may throw a spontaneous party. If we were from a culture where rhythm and beat and song was part of our cultural heritage, we might sing and clap our hands and stomp and, and twirl. And that's the picture that I want you to have of the Magnificat, not of a, a, a white nun, but of a poor Middle Eastern girl filled with ecstatic joy who ends up composing what's, what's essentially like a, a song of revolution. So let's look at it. Number one. 
Uh, the Magnificat can simply be described as a virtual collage of biblical text. This is the easiest observation to make for sure. I mean, all you need is a cross-reference in your Bible to see that she borrows, so many of the lines of the song are borrowed from earlier parts of, of the scriptures. So from Exodus, or, yeah, Exodus 15, the song of Miriam, from Judges 5, the song of Deborah, and particularly she calls upon Hannah's song from 1 Samuel 2. While we may not be terribly familiar with those Old Testament passages, I mean, in truth, most of us, we don't really know much about the Old Testament in general, but notice she did. Um, that was her Bible, and she had, from an early age, memorized large sections of the Bible, and, um, or so it seems. Number two, in addition to being biblical, Mary's song, Magnificat, is also, it's got to be deeply personal. And it speaks to her own experience. What do I mean? Well, you know, the majority of people living in America below the poverty line, they, um, they own a cell phone. They, they may even own an automobile. They have a, probably have a television. Um, obesity and nutrition tend to be the, the bigger issues that we have in America with poverty, um, not acute hunger. But if you remember the place and time that Mary w- was in, you know, the hungry we're, we're literally like you know, starving children in Africa today. They literally, were, they didn't know where tomorrow's food was coming from. And the poor were not protected by any form of stable government. They weren't protected by anyone. They were literally powerless. So when she, when she speaks in the song of God filling the hungry with good things, she's undoubtedly speaking about her own experience of being famished and provided for. When she speaks of God lifting up the humble and protecting them, she's probably recalling times when he did the same thing for her. Being a woman in a world was not, was not safe it, at the least. And there were soldiers. and There was an occupying force in the land that day. Um, maybe she was singing when God protected her from being attacked, or shielded her from abuse in a world where it really wasn't safe to be a woman. She's saying, this is what God has done for me. And principally, um, you know, this is what she saw as a signal for what God would do for many others. So the Magnificat is kind of like a first century, as I said, revolutionary song, a protest song. If you remember, you know, the We Shall Overcome song, how that was prominent in the civil rights movement. And, you know, that's kind of what she's doing. Number three, she sings about power and social class and wealth and those currently on thrones who will be brought down, and those who are, who are humbled and despised and afflicted would be raised up. And she talks about how all of this is according to the promises that God had made to the patriarch Abraham, how he, he remembered those promises, and that her pregnancy signals that a great reversal has begun to take place between the mighty and the powerless, just as Jesus himself will later in his life... Uh, uh, Focus on this theme, you know, and even if you don't know much about Jesus, you've probably heard this line before, that some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. You know, that was a very important theme of his kingdom, that many people, especially the rich and the powerful in that day, who assumed that they would have the very best seats at the the banquet that was yet to take place um, in the future kingdom, those people will not even be let in. 
while those who are thought to be unworthy of a seat will be given the seats of honor. And that is what she sings about. It, it doesn't sound very Christmassy, does it? <laughs> it doesn't sound very Christmassy. It doesn't sound very American Christmassy. You know, here we have, um, I think, one of the uh, shows, that uh, Christmas movies, that is on the Hallmark Channel. What is this? Uh, right? What is it? I, right before Christmas. And, you know, that... Here are the plot lines we have to choose from, from the Hallmark Channel's um, Christmas movies. They include hot single businesswoman finds Christmas love with hot single dad. And that's the, about 80% of all the movies, right? It's, it's the same movie, it's just different actors over and over again. Uh, we have small business on the verge of bankruptcy gets saved at the 11th hour. Or we have children wish for family togetherness and their wish is granted. I guess the last of those is, is better than the first of the two. But you think about it, what is Christmassy in America? I mean, we've, the, the retail industrial complex has had us doing cultural Christmas now for almost three months. And none of it has to do at all with a reversal, does it? God taking the powerful and smashing them to the ground and God taking the lowly and lifting them up. Nothing, none of it has to do with Mary's message. What is Mary's message? That God, this is important, God has chosen sides and he has chosen the side of the poor. That's her message. Like with the coming of God's kingdom, he's not with the powerful and the rich or the occupying force but he is with the humble people on the margins who fear him, who look to him in faith, and that in the future kingdom of heaven, whatever that is and whenever it will come, it hasn't, Luke hasn't told us yet, um, in the storyline that is, that future kingdom will be characterized by a radical reordering of power. And her, her pregnancy signals that that reordering, that reversal has begun. Number four, so if that's the case, uh, it, reads, it leads to lots of questions, one of which is, why don't our Christmas carols ever sing about this? Because I don't know about you, um, I love Christmas carols, but I, I can't think of a single Christmas song that actually sings about God bringing down the mighty and sending away the rich hungry. I've never been to a lessons and carols or Christmas service where we said, okay, in our next song, we're, we're going to sing about the powerful being brought down, you know, crashed, to, being cast down. Um, who, why? Why have we lost that? It, it was the central theme of the very first Christmas song. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the focus on the birth of Jesus, uh, but if we were really getting in touch with the Christmas spirit as Mary exemplifies it, then shouldn't our Christmas carols sound a little more Marxist? <laughs> you know, the very last time, okay, I'll, I'll walk that statement back in a second, but <laughs> <laughs> the very last time I preached on the Magnificat, I had somebody accuse me of actually of being a Marxist, which I'm not. I promise I'm not. <laughs> you know, I promise that I am, I am, just to be clear, not calling for revolution and the seizure of all private property and the, re the nationalization of state resources. And I'm not asking that new guillotines be uh, built in public squares to chop off the heads of the rich. Okay, are we, are we clear? But it's clear that God has begun some kind of massive reversal. And we see it through the rest of the pages of Luke's gospel and the rest of the gospels. Who are the people in Jesus' kingdom that have clout, 
it turns out to be like poor fishermen from the Sea of Galilee who end up being the most important people in his kingdom and and a bunch of women who follow him around and basically f- fund his ministry. They end up being kind of the most important people uh, and you know, poor widows who give their might in the temple, poor lepers who have their rotting flesh made baby smooth, clean, um, they become the first in the kingdom of heaven. It's not the Herods and the Caesars. In fact, we're not even talking hardly about Herod or Caesar 2,000 years later, but we are about poor Galilean fishermen. Um, This is God's doing. It's his reversal. Um, I, I remember back to the beginning of the book of Genesis, where you have the patriarch Jacob, and he is about to lay his hand on his son's head to, to bestow the, the, the paternal blessing on his deathbed upon his uh, sons. And what does he do in that very moment? Uh, he ends up crossing his hands and taking his right hand and putting on the head of the lesser son, the younger son, left hand on the head of the older son, completely against all social conventions of the day. He, he crosses his hand to, to bring the blessing. And what, what Mary is doing, she's marveling that he has, he's done the same thing again on her head. That's what she's singing about. He's crossed his hands on my head. And so I, I want to challenge you in the, the week that we have leading to the birth of Jesus that we celebrate on December the 25th. As you read these stories and you think about them, um, just notice that you, you, can't, you can't help but conclude that though the world today is decidedly tilted towards, in favor of, the rich and the powerful, these stories tell us that God is tilted towards the underdog. And that shows up time and again in the story. And what I would ask you, uh, simply enough, is, um, is that true of you? Like, is your life tilted in, in that same way? You know, towards the poor, towards, towards the vulnerable, towards the underdog, towards those who suffer injustice. Like, would, is care for the poor really something that's important to you? Will you, will you end up spending any money this Christmas on, on the poor, on gifts for the poor, for instance. You know, we, our lives, we just get so busy with all the other things. One of the, great, one of the great challenges is how do I not live in this nice, rich, opulent city that I live in at a considerable distance away from taking notice of the poor? How do I, how do I live in proximity with them faithfully? Um, how do I have my eyes open to injustices? How do I speak about those wisely and properly? How do I advocate for those who have no voice? How do I pray fervently for those who are not experiencing um, a just return? Uh, those are the questions that we should absolutely be asking at all times, but especially, you know, the time when our Savior is born in the way that he was. Number five, and this is my last point, uh, Mary declares that she herself is blessed. She uses a language of like, you've looked upon me uh, with your favor. And her blessing reminds us when we are most blessed. Now, what do I mean by that? Notice when she sings of God in the Magnificat, 
She doesn't say that God looked upon her uh, with favor because of her virtue. And we talked about that last week. You know, Mary's, she's an amazing young woman, but it's not as though she's blessed because she is perfect. Um, She didn't say that God looked with favor on her because of her activism. She's not some great peace activist necessarily. And she doesn't say that God looked with favor on her for the fact that she tried so hard that she finally had become the ideal version of herself. No, God looked on favor with her because he just looked on favor at her lowliness. And that's instructive, I think, given how frequently you and I end up cursing our own lowliness. You know, we berate ourselves for our own failings and the defects of character that we carry around with us. We obsess about our own flaws and shortcomings. We beat ourselves for not trying hard enough to to be the successful person that we should be. Um, we, We just complain a whole lot about our own shortcomings and failings, failing to recognize that that is the perfect entry point for God to make his way deeper into our lives. You know, it's not our strength and our virtues where God ends up doing his best work. It's in our lowliness. We are most blessed when we are most weak. You know, and look, we want the storyline of our lives to go from strength to strength. That's the American way, from success to success, and to eventually end happily ever after. But throughout the Bible, we see something completely different, a persistent narrative pattern of, of life through death and of triumph through weakness that reveals how God is pleased to work um, in history and in our lives. It's not when we are just doing fine, and it's not when we are crushing it, it's when we've got nothing going for us. That's when his grace seems to find us most powerfully. And what am I doing? All I'm doing is just describing to you, right, the cross. You know, it's the cruciform life that is the most blessed life. Finally, um, I came across a four-minute Christmas video called Christmas Volunteers, and it starts out with some couples who are walking hand-in-hand into a meeting. It kind of looks like they're, they might be walking into a, a, I don't know, a marriage seminar, but the sign outside the meeting reads, Volunteer Couples Needed Become Parents of Future Savior. And so we walk in, and we see about 20 or so nice-looking couples present, and a man walks up to the podium, and he says, <clears throat> Good evening, everyone, and thank you for being here. This is an incredibly special event, one not witnessed in our lifetime or ever, for that matter. Uh, we are here to select a couple that will give birth to and raise a savior, uh, a, raise the savior of this world. And then there's you know, applause from everyone. This baby is the one each of us, all of mankind, has been waiting for. He is the Messiah that's promised. More applause. Uh, Now, only one couple will be selected, and you should be aware that certain requirements will be asked of you. I will go quickly through the list, and if you choose not to participate, feel free to leave at any time, and and thank you for your interest. So here we go. And then he, you know, pulls out a a list, and there's this dramatic piano music playing in the background, and he says, number one, the couple must not be married but engaged, which describes all of you. Number two, ladies, you will become pregnant and not by your fiancé or any other man. 
It will be the work of God, the Holy Spirit. I'm not fully qualified to explain how this work, how this will be, so an angel will come and do that for you, explain it to you. Number three, uh, many won't understand this, and you're going to have to be okay with that. (laughs) And at that moment, you know, several people start walking out of the room. He goes on, number four, it will be a difficult pregnancy requiring painful travel. In fact, you will deliver in an unfamiliar place far from home, You will have no place to stay there, though. There will be no hospitals, no doctors or nurses. You probably assume this already, but it will be a natural birth, no uh, epidurals, no drugs. And then you see a bunch of people (laughs) leave at that moment. Uh, When the baby is born, you will wrap him in rags and lay him in a box that farm animals eat from. It will be far from sanitary, but as difficult as it will be, uh, our Savior will be here in the form of your Son. He will grow up and eventually reveal who he really is. He will be perfect, the perfect child, both fully God and fully human. He will heal the sick and give hope to the weary, which uh, is all of us. But he will infuriate the powers that be, which leads to number, and I forget what number he's at this point, leads to uh, an untimely death at a relatively young age, during which he will suffer beyond anything we can ever imagine. He will be mocked, whipped, and beaten to the point that you will not recognize your own son. He will be betrayed, he will be betrayed, accused, and sentenced to be nailed to a cross. And mom, you will watch this happen till the very end. So who's ready? <laughs> and the gentleman looks up from the podium as he's finished reading from his list. And, and you know, how many couples are, are left at, in the, the room? Of course, there are none. And nobody, nobody wants to volunteer to be that father, and even more, nobody wants to volunteer to to be that mother. And it's a reminder to us, isn't it, that if Jesus Christ were coming into the world today in 2023, not in in 4 BC, uh, you and I, we wouldn't have been chosen, and and we wouldn't have volunteered either. God God would not be born to any of us college-educated, Phoenix, Arizona. No, he was born in a peasant family, a teenage girl, a blue-collar carpenter in, a, in what was essentially a third-world country. And in that, he was starting the great reversal. When Mary sings, My soul magnifies the Lord, she not only designates God as the Mighty One and the Holy One of Israel, but she extols the Lord's mighty deeds in the form of her miracle pregnancy. And she recognizes that this child will lead to the rise and fall of many, that he would turn the world upside down, that those who are proud and powerful and prosperous, they will come down to the ground, while the humble, the weak, and the poor will be exalted. A radical reorienting of power has begun, and the long shots would end up winning the greatest of the races. Amen.